0: A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast in which I talk to artists about their influences, from writers to filmmakers, musicians and of course other artists, and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode it's A Brush With, Jacqueline Humphreys, an artist who has pushed painting into new territories. Mindful of its history, but embracing technologies and exploring how they might impact this time-honoured medium, Jacqueline's practice, which now stretches across five decades from the late 1980s to today, is rigorous, irreverent and consistently surprising. Jacqueline was born in 1960 in New Orleans in the US and now lives and works in New York. She studied at the Parsons School of Design in New York and then enrolled on the hugely influential Whitney Independent Study Program at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York, graduating in 1986. She remembers an intervention staged by fellow students on the program in which they marched into her studio and told her to stop painting. Such was the atmosphere around the medium at the time. A so-called new spirit in the discipline had been celebrated in museums and galleries, yet the avant-garde community, particularly in New York, regarded painting as dead. So Jacqueline saw painting as a rogue practice, as she's put it, and alongside others, including Charlene von Heil, Laura Owens and Amy Silman, a former guest on this podcast, she's propelled abstraction into the heart of the urgent discussions about media within 21st century art. Jacqueline's earliest paintings reflect her ongoing concerns with processes and mechanisms and the unexpected freedoms they allow the painter she used the circular shape of mechanical key punches, which allowed her to create an array of paintings in which the circular form covers the canvas, jostling on the surface, or seeming to slide across it, leaving a liquid trail. Painterly drips were at the heart of much of her 1990s work. They inevitably relate to the legacy of the New York School and Abstract Expressionism, which as you'll hear, have been a perennial touchstone for Jacqueline over the years. But whereas the abex drip was a gesture of action and chaos, she uses them as a constructive element, a compositional device that belies the form's apparent immediacy. It's only when one's up close to her surfaces that the full complexity of her paintings is revealed. Though they often relate to digital or mechanical systems and languages, they're avowedly physical and retinal. There's a deep fascination and pleasure to be found in their surfaces. And this is something that she's deliberately pushed to extremes. At first glance, a group of works in a sequence she called Horizontal from the 1990s seem to be a blizzard of expressive dashes made with a loaded brush, wet on wet in multiple colours, producing a field of brush marks. But then one spots the precise horizontal line across the canvas that completely subverts the structureless composition one initially comprehends. One's forced to move in, to look closely, to fathom how she did it. This is a typical experience of looking at her work, which I've found to be just as akin to exploring sculpture as it is to looking at painting. Some of the horizontal works also deliberately engage with the cinema screen and its seductive powers, and Jacqueline took this a stage further with her paintings using silver paint in the mid 2000s, works that riff literally and metaphorically, with the silver screen. The silver paintings reflect the light in the room and the viewer as they look at the work and project into our space. They change according to where they're viewed and never sit still. Here again, Jacqueline explored the intersection of precision and abandon, with hard edges meeting some of the most expressive, even violent, marks she's made. After the silver paintings, she made the black light works with fluorescent paint and installed them in the darkness with UV lighting, trying to imagine how painting might perform not in the daylight white cube, but in the conditions of a nightclub. Like many of Jacqueline's ideas, the concept of the blacklight paintings appears absurd, yet time and again she's exploited absurdity to positive effect. In the mid-2010s, she began embedding emoticons, the now anachronistic prototypes for emojis, in her canvases. She also began exploring another antiquated electronic coding language, the American Standard Code for Information Interchange, or ASCII, even remaking an entire body of work translated into ASCII characters. Electronic communication continues to preoccupy her. Capture codes, those combinations of warped letters and numbers that are used to confirm human interaction online, become strange hieroglyphics across her canvases, and emojis from smiley or sad faces to cats also found their inevitable path into her work with enormously diverse results. Often these elements are applied through stencils, which have been an important means of layering distinctive effects and images into her work in recent years. The stenciled emojis often create a field that Jacqueline interrupts or perhaps even sabotages with conventional painterly splashes, smears and drips. Yet even they might be made by stencils too. In Jacqueline's work, you take nothing for granted. I met Jacqueline at the Modern Art Gallery in East London just as she'd opened a new show of her work, one that continues to probe painting's boundaries. Among the elements of these works are sculptural drips, the inventory codes used for Jacqueline's paintings by her galleries, the Art Basel Fair's logo, and huge splashes partly informed by the climate emergency activist group Just Stop Oils protest in which they threw tomato soup over Van Gogh's sunflowers at the National Gallery in London. Nearly 40 years after she was told to stop painting, Jacqueline has relentlessly mind the possibilities of the medium today and its place within art history, the art world and wider society with extraordinary curiosity and invention. So I began our conversation by asking her if the supposed death of painting has proved more of a liberation than a restriction.
1: I think what was referred to as the end of painting was the end of a certain trajectory in painting. And certainly, you know, art historians, notably Yves-Alebois, wrote very cogently about that, that the end of painting was just the end of a certain historical trajectory. There are other stories of painting yet to unfold or be told.
0: But the richness with which you have investigated painting, it seems to me is part of like, well, how can we think about painting now, given that there is so much, if you like, antagonism towards it, literally people on the Whitney study program coming into your studio and sort of staging an intervention, but also just thinking around painting in a general sense, you know, what are its properties and how can I mine them, if you like?
1: Well, when I was in art school, the state of painting as it was then was you know, minimalism and this you know, painting totally evacuated of image, of any reference. And, and, you know, again, this was the story of painting that was like coming to its end game. You know, at this point, artists were competing with each other for the best last painting, you know, to absurd effect in the end. So this is, you know, painting now is this vacuum and something must fill that vacuum. And it's not like I had immediate answers to that, but that became a very central question for me which over the years has determined the direction of my own painting.
0: It seems to me that there's this really interesting dynamic in your work between control and the total relinquishing of control. And I wonder how you stage that dynamic and how kind of automatic it is or random or indeed how staged it is.
1: You know, I like to make really messy, careless marks with paint. I like to throw it around. I like to smear it around. I like to use, you know, cleaning tools to make dirty painting. But I know that those kinds of marks are not new, and so they come with certain expectations. And so then I proceed to kind of exploit those expectations by making probably messy, accidental marks into their opposite. You know, making them in a very deliberate way. You know, a, a careless, accidental mark becomes highly deliberate, highly almost designed or planned and used in a structuring way, whereas traditionally it's seen as a, you know, very anti-structured, de-structured, you know, informal. I you know, make it formal. So that added another dimension where I started using stenciling and such to kind of repeat accidental marks like drips or pours and being able to, like, you know, use them as, a, again, a kind of a, something as deliberate as, you know, trying to make a clean line or something.
0: Absolutely. And, and in the exhibition that's downstairs from where we're sitting now at Helmet Row and Modern Art Space, there is a very clear example of that kind of meditated expression, if you like, which is in the form of these drips, which are standing very proud from the canvas, as if they are sort of almost sculptural. Can you say something about the making of those kind of marks?
1: So, yeah, you mentioned they're very sculptural. Yeah. I mean, I think about my painting right now it almost is like flat sculpture and there are elements of relief that come in and you know like specifically an opportunity for wanting to make a very sculptural painterly mark would be to uh, use a stencil to make something that otherwise would never appear that way like a drip or a pore is usually thinness or things spilling right And yet I'm making them into these very thick, almost imposter marks. So it's impossible, like the image and the material reality that's creating the image don't go together. So it creates a situation, I hope, where someone looking at the painting is really going to spend time. It draws you in because something's wrong, obviously, with what's going on, yet things are familiar, yet unfamiliar. And I hope that that gives me a chance to draw the viewer in so that other things can unfold from the experience of looking
0: I'm really conscious that when I look at your work, I'm often confused about what Mark came first and what Mark came last, how it was completed and all those kind of things. So that sort of uncertainty, it seems to me, is crucial part of the whole experience.
1: Yes, I think you say confused, you are confused. I'm confused too. <laughs> and I think I want to bring that out in the paintings. Like, I It's not that I want to confuse like in the way that I want to trick or deceive. It's more like... I want to create a state of confusion that, might, that I might share as an artist, that is something that excites me to see in painting, you know, an internal state of confusion, an external state of the painting as confusing.
0: Tell me about this idea that you've... I really love this idea, actually. You said you almost seek to be banished from the work, to have a kind of objectivity from the work, to allow it to do its thing almost sort of automatically somehow. Is that the right connotation of that word?
1: I think I must have been talking about like, how do you know when the painting's finished? That's a really hard thing to talk about. I think it's a very hard thing to do and to learn over time because I think any painter that I know, we've all painted over many really good paintings just because we wanted more out of it or we had doubt. And so, like, is it good? Is it not good? Is not maybe the right question to ask in terms of what one is looking for, but... It's something I noticed over time. Well, two things, really. One was this kind of quiet voice, very quiet, saying, stop. The other was like, don't always have the last word. But I think what I recognized through learning those things was that at some point I can stand back from the painting and it just seems to kind of open up. And suddenly it has nothing to do with me anymore. It's its own thing. And learning how to recognize that and let go of like everything I want from it and let it kind of speak to me. So for that reason, I work on a lot of paintings at once, because it takes time to kind of know what to do for on the one hand, also know when maybe the pain is like, hey, leave me alone, you know, like back off. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, I think it's not uncommon to have this, like always to want to do that last thing or to fix something and or to fiddle or, you know, to get petty or sneaky with it. Yeah.
0: Going back to that idea of working on several paintings at once, you've talked about this idea of not working so much in series, but in sequences. Mm-hmm. And I like that idea that there's a sort of series of ideas that are moving from one picture to the next. Mm-hmm. Can you say something about how that works?
1: So the way that I start a body of work usually is just experimenting. Like I have some ideas of things I want to do that might be ways of using paint or getting paint on the canvas. That's a big part of painting is just how are you going to get the stuff on there? So I'll experiment for some weeks and kind of try things out, but none of the paintings are really going anywhere, so to speak, but just getting ideas out. And then at some point I'll put all that away and just say to myself, well, what I need from that phase, I'll remember. What I don't need, I'll forget. And then I just start afresh and then working with more intent. It's sort of like ideas swirling around the studio begin to like lodge in certain paintings, which unlocks a kind of like a cascade of or a sequence of paintings. Like this painting makes you want to make that painting. So it's not like the ideas are set beforehand, which is what would define a series, where you have these elements and they're playing out differently, but it's all set. Sequence is more like each part of the process that occurs begets a kind of new set of possibilities. So the ideas are kind of rolling forward and then eventually it kind of comes around and rounds out as a body of work. So it's more than just making paintings and making body of work is uh, central to how I make painting. And
0: do you, in a way, test yourself to do things you know you kind of shouldn't, in a way? I'm thinking about things like involving emoticons or emojis. It's like, if painting is to be serious, surely you can't paint with emojis. That seems to me to be like a challenge that you set yourself.
1: It's a terrible idea. And that's what's good about it. I mean, I came to the idea of eventually, like, you know, really good ideas can make really bad painting, and really bad ones can make really good painting. So when I get a bad idea that I know is bad that I shouldn't do, maybe I should just try it and, you know, enjoy or have, like, you know, take some pleasure or glee in sort of doing something that feels a little naughty or wrong And this has happened a lot in the last several years. Um, Like it's beginning with the emoticons, like, hey, I'm an abstract painter. What am I doing? Putting faces in my paintings like that shouldn't happen. (laughs) Um, But then ideas like that can catch hold, you know, beyond the sort of initial like, ha, 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 you know, that suddenly it can sort of pan out in in other ways and become more dimensional. So Yeah, I've learned not to be such snob about my own bad ideas and kind of let them in, you know, let things overtake me. You know, take, for instance, all of the, say, you know, in the case of emoticons, so much content, which is sort of new content, things we're doing, ways we're communicating or living, all the stuff that's kind of dumped at my doorstep. Again, at, you know, the threshold of the vacuum which painting became at its own endgame, so... Yeah, sort of like this is now I'm understanding what is coming to fill the vacuum. And just where things that I'm encountering in my own life on a daily basis that are also forced on me, you know, in various ways. So
0: Yeah. And then... There's this wonderful thing, which is the unpronounceability of your titles. So lots of your titles are made up of characters or emojis, and I'm conscious that it all adds to that kind of uncertain space that I was talking about before. To a certain extent, I don't know how to say that series of characters that is the title of this work. And that, again, puts you into an indeterminate kind of position. And to me, I'm I'm excited by that because it means that, again, it reinforces the physicality of the painting to a certain degree.
1: Yeah, it's kind of stubborn thingness or something. And you certainly stumble on it, right? I also, I liked using like an actual emoji as a title, because it's not like you can just reproduce that uh, in every format, right? So it creates problems for itself, and how it could be identified, you know, across, say, different platforms without interoperability. And this is a thing we're all encountering in our daily life, too. So it Helps the painting rather than having a title which describes the painting in some way. It gives the painting a different kind of agency in the world because it must be named and spoken about. And also, the inventory numbers have a lot to do with that. And so, kind of putting like a wrench in the gears of like this whole way that things enter databases by putting inventory numbers of already existing paintings into new paintings, which then go on to have their own new inventory numbers in the way that they become part of a database became very interesting to me. Even though that was one of those bad ideas that started <laughs> out feeling like, haha, that just be kind of naughty. I'm just going to mess with my gallery. I'm going <laughs> to make it hard for them to know what is what and name things or, you know, it became, it sort of panned out in this interesting way.
0: And having the Art Basel logo too, on there's a painting downstairs and in Berry Street as well that, you know, literally there's the Art Basel logo. Writ large in the middle of a canvas, and and again, I'm like, of course your galleries are selling your works in Art Basel, but of course the idea of them taking that picture then to Art Basel and having it on the walls, you know, I'm sure they'd be uncomfortable with that. So in a way, the kind of uncomfortable space that you're sort of wading into, you're bringing everybody around your work with you to a certain degree.
1: Well, I think it could probably be agreed, at least you know, in the initial phase of the life of that painting that you just shouldn't do that, you know? <laughs> but we were all pretending in a way like the Art Basel thing is not a part of everything that we do when it is, you know? This whole thing of, like, logoing institutions began, well, for one, with using captions like my own captures, to identify myself. Secondly, when I did a show at Dia Bridge Hampton, using their logo in the works, you know, sort of embossing the Dia logo, which, again, like, Dia doesn't even use their own logo, (laughs) right? They're so discreet with their logo and their advertising. And this is just their identity. But at the same time, like, I was making that show in the smallest Dia space, which is this tiny kind of basement in Bridgehampton. Yet it was my Dia show. You know, I wanted a sense of the grandeur of their vast, far-flung spaces like Spiral Jetty or Lightning Field and to bring some of that scale into this little basement space. Yes, it was a funny, naughty thing to do, but also it has sublime aspects which interested me
0: and then of course, there's the appearance of the titles with emojis in them in the middle of a scholarly catalogue text, which again kind of explodes it. It's just when you look at it on the page, it's utterly absurd, you know
1: <laughs> like I say, just I just can't help it. it's just <laughs> too good. I can't pass up you know the the way of sort of undermining the seriousness and all of this, because like I think we're all in the soup of this, you know, not knowing. Like I, an adult, you know, am like communicating with emojis, and my son is telling me, "Mom, you people don't use that emoji anymore, don't you know? <laughs> that is so out of fashion." And just it's really just this is brand new kind of set of terms, you know. It's really fun to be doing something that feels absurd, but you're doing it with utter seriousness, you know, and uh, I think that's what makes it painting, is the seriousness part. But, you know, I love the idea that you can inject these foreign elements into it and and have it work somehow. It, like, you know, gives me a sense of, like, really that I'm pushing the boundaries here of abstraction, even though, you know, it's a bit of a crisis. Like, yeah, I am an abstract painter, but Yes, that is a face you see there, and uh, (laughs) I don't know what it's doing there. It just seemed to force its way into the painting somehow.
0: (laughs) I wanted to ask about stencils, which of course often convey those kind of symbols, and how much they are just a part of the process, and to what extent you see them as a kind of drawing. Because of course you're making them to eventually lead to something on a painting, but they entail making marks of a kind. So to what extent do you see those as sort of drawings leading to the painting?
1: So I've used stencils for many years. I mean, initially they were all hand cut. I'm not really a drawer. You know, I don't make works on paper so often. I certainly don't make them as preliminary to painting. The stenciling, again, wanting to reproduce sort of accidental marks, like brought in this idea of stenciling. There were some paintings I made in the 90s where there were big pores on the painting and I would make hand cut stencils off those pores and then reverse the stencil and then paint the same motif back onto the painting and so it's something that was operating in the work for a long time and how to also an interest in scale, like how to make things the wrong size. you can do with stenciling. there's just so many options and yeah, I think it is my way of drawing because my painting really is and I think American abstraction really is much more, it's different than, say, European abstraction, that it's really about mass rather than line. So the stenciling gives me a way to create mass as a kind of drawing thing where I can play with it as one would play with line in a drawing.
0: Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved?
1: The first painter that I really fell in love with was Manet. And I was living in Paris. I hadn't been painting for very long. Initially, I made ceramics. And uh, there was this one painting in the Louvre that I was fascinated with, which is his little portrait of Mallarmé. And Mallarmé is sort of leaning over on the bed and he's smoking a cigarette and he's saying something, he's pointing to a text. And it's the way he painted that smoke Coming up from that cigarette fascinated me, and I went and visited this painting many times. So this kind of unfolded for me. I mean, the first serious painting I looked at was Cezanne. I'd gone to see while I was in high school in Houston, Texas. You know, I grew up in New Orleans, so... And uh, that gave me an idea of, like, you know, that painting could be a serious thing, and this was serious painting. So that was sort of my foundation, but really Manet was the first painter that I really fell in love with.
0: Do you still look at Manet today?
1: Oh yes, you know, it's it's all there for me. My ideas about it have evolved and grown maybe, but I still am just absolutely drawn to his paintings. They rivet me.
0: There's this extraordinary Manet de show on in Paris at the moment, and there's that great painting from the Met of the woman with the parrot. And at the bottom of it is an orange. And I was just struck by, like, everybody talks about Manet's flowers, but... I don't know if there's a better painter of fruit ever. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And one of these things about Manet is that every time you come back to him, he's returned to you anew, you know. That, he's one of those painters that's completely reinvented every time you look at the
1: work. I agree, and I think the way he paints fruit is the same as the way he paints people or big group paintings of people, you know, like sur Serlaire. All of his paintings for me have the same thing that's happening. Right? It's hard for me to describe what that is exactly. But I think it has to do with his presence and how he makes it so immediate in the act of painting that then becomes sealed in time, but it's available to us in our own time, because of where he stands between us and the painting, you know And uh, you know, if you read his letters, he talks about like no tasking, right? So I think from looking at his paintings, you know, where he just stops just shy of done, right, never going too far always leaving you wanting a little more maybe but also not i think that his idea of what an artist is and can be as an artist but as a person are very still relevant questions today and especially if you live in in a city and have this kind of utter sophistication but also rawness which is makes them very compelling
0: absolutely one of the things i'm struck by again in that show in Paris was that both Dugas and Manet, I love that you talked about the unfinished or on the cusp of finished and unfinished. Degas, it seems to me, was an artist who just consistently never knew when to finish and always took his paintings back and reworked and so on. Yes. And it seems to me that is almost the hardest thing as a painter, isn't it, to let go? <laughs> you talked about it earlier on, but this idea of being able to stand outside of your paintings.
1: It is hard. I think, in a way, the difference between Manet and Degas for me is Degas is more involved with artistry and quality, you know, so he obsesses about that, right? I think Manet's obsession was the human component of what I'm doing is primal and should be the thing that really defines the art, not perfection or finish or, you know, but to be humanly available as a maker in this moment today. So I think they're similar artists in many ways, but of course they're in the same time, but very, very different.
0: And which other historical artist do you turn to the most?
1: That changes over time, and I'm always happy to change my mind about an artist. Initially, I hated Caravaggio. Extraordinary. (laughs) Really just did not like Caravaggio. And then one day, I was in Rome in a church standing in front of a painting, and I saw something in the painting. It was this painting where it's famous because he had a prostitute pose as his mother Mary, and there are two peasants kneeling in front of her, and you see their dirty feet and everything. It's something that was going on with the hands that struck me, and suddenly I saw what he wanted me to see, and then then I had a complete reversal of of opinion. Of course, now he's probably as important to me as Manet. But I think, you know, initially maybe I reacted to the violence of his work and didn't know how to deal with that, and now he showed me a way into what he was doing. So I think, you know, we all must be patient with ourselves, and it's also wonderful to sort of... Hate this artist, one, and then you love them, and then like, then you have this new thing that <laughs> it's like making up with a friend that you know was once an enemy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's nice. Obviously, that happened in front of the work in Rome, right? So, yes, is it something about having that very direct communion with the work? Somehow, there's this sort of magical thing that happens between us as a viewer and the work, and then knowing that the artist has made it and how they've made it, and so on. There's, there's something very strange in that but wonderful and it seems to me that that kind of conversion that epiphany if you like can often really only happen actually in the flesh rather than through reproduction or whatever
1: so I've tried to show friends what I saw in this painting through you know showing them in a reproduction but you just can't see it even like in details of this part of the painting that struck me suddenly where I was seeing like almost a message through time that Caravaggio was sending me this naughty thing he wanted me to see. It's just not present. You have to see. I've gone back to see the painting, to check myself. Like, was it really there? And it's in the painting, but photography destroys it. And I think, you know, photography is kind of the enemy of painting for that reason. It pretends to honour it, but actually destroys it.
0: And your work, it reproduces just fine. But one of the things I'm really conscious looking at reproductions is you feel when you're looking at them, I really need to see this painting. It's almost like a deliberate thing, it seems.
1: It's become deliberate over time. But I also think, in a weird way, my painting is not visual. I don't know what I mean by that, really, but it's a sense I have that it's so much about the presence of the object and the tactility. And You know, I mean, it's made by touch, right? It's more like, I don't need to see what I'm doing, I just need to know what I'm doing and how it feels, you know. And then the visual part is, like, what surprises me about the result more than, like, things that I envisioned.
0: Well, a lot of the characteristics, I guess, about your work are kind of spatial, architectural almost, in the sense that they change greatly from different perspectives, from different parts of the room and so on. So in a way, you don't get your paintings by standing directly in front of it, and that's that. You have to move in order to kind of get its fullness, if you like.
1: That's certainly true now, and it has been... silver paintings that I made for many years can't be photographed because they keep changing. Sometimes they sort of light up in certain light and other times they kind of turn off and look dead, you know. Those opposites are part of the reality of the painting, not this fixed thing that which photograph does to the painting and also flattens it. And, you know, it's a necessary approximation in our very much photo-based world, but my aim really is not to have people see photos of my work really is to have the painting in a room somewhere and a person looking at it, just one person, you know, in a sense that constitutes more of an audience than a thousand people seeing a photo of it.
0: That's really nice. While we're talking about historic artists, I wanted to talk about abstract expressionism because, of course, if you're an American artist, especially engaging in abstraction, you can't not make reference to them in one way or another. But you have begun to make the most direct of all references you could possibly make to abstract expressionism by including the signature of Barnett Newman on your paintings. Tell me about that.
1: It's another terrible idea. And yet I love Newman's painting. I love just everything about him as an artist, his whole story. It's so interesting. I sort of think of all the New York School painters as one artist in a way, but Newman sort of stands apart in many ways, as they all do in different ways. But in and the way I'm interested in that right now is when I was an art student and we were all reverent of Barnett Newman, we would all say, yeah, but why does he have to sign the paintings on the front? Doesn't he understand he's ruining them by doing that? <laughs> and then eventually I realized, like, well, that is how he finishes them, by ruining them. I think that this detail, which was wrong, became so poignant for me over time when I realized like, that is another way to finish a painting, by ruining it for better or worse.
0: And then, of course, you include, for instance, in the painting downstairs, which includes his signature, you include your signature, as it were, which is your sort of gallery number, the sort of inventory number of your work. Obviously, there'll be people that will read that and go, she's stamping her authority over Newman. She's replacing him. But, of course, it's a kind of homage in a way, isn't it?
1: I think this painting is all about failure. Like, look, I set out to make a Barnett Newman painting, and this is how it turned out. You know, so, but in other words, it's an act of love. It's funny, but, you know, in the end, it really is an act of love to take the time to make this painting that is a kind of an homage, but I don't think I'm, you know, spitting on him. I certainly don't. I mean, the color of the painting, I love this painting, and I'm actually keeping it from my own collection, because uh, it's got something that I really like in it, you know, but, you know, and there's a kind of story to it, like, yes, I set out to make this Barnett Newman painting, and Boy, did I fail. <laughs> but I guess I have to ruin it by signing it also the same as he did as a kind of, I don't know, supportive gesture retroactively.
0: But of course, there's, there's also interesting dialogue with other abstract expressionists within the same painting in the sense that you're involving a kind of drip or the idea of a drip. And one associates the drip much less with him than with other artists of that period but it's also a self-reference isn't it, it i think of the painting called out which is a very early painting of yours which has you know the sort of impression of a kind of punch a circular mark and then the drips from that and so it seems to me that you're bound up with all of it as well as the kind of history of abstract expressionism
1: well i mean there are drips in newman's paintings and a more gestural application of paint here and there in a way that's very different than, say, Pollock. It means a different thing. So when he has a drip, it's it's behaving in this much more important structural way. Like maybe there's only one or two, yeah. right? So it's a different kind of statement than building a whole, you know, web of accidental marks making one thing that's anything but accidental. Mm-hmm. So it's a different thing, and I think it's closer to how I have dealt with drips. You know, it's stiff and kind of uncool, you know? Again, this kind of wrongness always, this sort of weird tensions. But, you know, perhaps he is, like, closer to Manet in the way that he approaches things. Then I wouldn't compare Pollock to Degas by any means, but very different, I think, you know, although they are sort of, as I think of them, like different parts of the same artist, sort of artists with multiple personalities. Which contemporary artist
0: do you most admire?
1: Oh, really, my friends, you know, uh, Charlene von Heil... Rachel Harrison, Amy Silliman, Rebecca Morris, I love her paintings, Mm. Laura Owens, Mm. Christopher Wool, Ryan Sullivan. You know, I find the people I want to talk about art with who are, you know, making great work, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that one perceives knowing the work of those artists and you is is that there is this real dialogue going on. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that all of you were presented with those very problems that we have discussed earlier on and how to make painting anew and, and to acknowledge its past but also push it forwards but is it as simple as that when you gather as it were do you talk about painting or do you just kind of talk about other artists you know talk about your face like manet or caravaggio or whatever
1: no i like what you say about them like this kind of see of the pants way right this is scrappiness you know amongst a lot of those artists i mean there are other artists i also admire that i don't know like charles ray or hmm. Pierre Huyg, I'm very interested in his work. and But it's also, you know, at certain phases, maybe you go more into your own thing. You don't think so much about, or as much, about what other artists are doing. And certainly at this phase of my life, I'm not going to friends' studios and communicating as much about how to do this damn thing, you know. I mean, Charlene von Heil and I are very close friends, and you know, at a certain point we were very much sort of like, kind of almost like, trying to figure it out together, you know, to solve this thing, like how to make painting, how to have a career, like how to get your painting out there. That really is the goal, how to get your work in the world. And, um, you know, we even had a backup plan, which was, hey, you know, if this career thing doesn't work out, we can open a lingerie store. (laughs) You know, knowing like probably we'd fail even worse at that. But uh, it was sort of a joke we had, you know. And then a friend I can't remember who said recently I think you should open that store anyway.
0: <laughs> Somewhere in a parallel universe that is happening.
1: Maybe. Yeah, maybe maybe next year.
0: <laughs> a brush with is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the Arts and Culture app. The free app offers access to more than 200 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Among the most recent additions to the app are the Venice Architecture Biennale and the Fundació Juan Miro in Barcelona. On Bloomberg Connects are various organisations with which Jacqueline Humphries has shown her work, from the Venice Biennale of Art to the Kitchen in New York and Dia Bridgehampton, where Jacqueline showed her black light works in 2019. If you download the app, you'll find that the Dia Guide has a section on the Bridgehampton site which was designed by the artist Dan Flavin to permanently house an installation of his work as well as temporary exhibitions like the one devoted to Tony Koch's opening on the 23rd of June. The guide also has features on Dia's 10 other locations including Robert Smithson's Spiral Jetty and Walter de Maria's Lightning Field. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. What do you have pinned to the studio wall?
1: You know, I make printouts of... Because we do a lot of things on the computer and the way that these stencils are made. So I kind of print out these giant menus of different motifs that could be made into stencils, different patterns. You know, I work closely with my studio manager, Peter Grenados, because the stencils are all vector files, and he is very adept at Photoshop, and we discuss and collaborate and come up with all different kinds of patterns. So there's always, like, a lot more ideas than that actually become paintings. So I have like a lot of that stuff pinned to the wall, just things that I want to look at every day and just walk by a hundred times a day. And then again, it's a way of taking time to gravitate to this and not that. Because again I have like all these ideas sort of floating around. Like, what do I need for this painting? What do I need for that? And just kind of sort of blindly feeling my way through just surrounding myself with all this stuff which is too much. And then finding myself looking more at this than something else and choosing things. And it's almost like these are palettes of colour, but different. They were palettes of images or possibilities or ways that paint can be brought to lodge on a canvas.
0: It it really speaks to that sense that I always have in front of your work where, where there is an element of collage or the incorporation of found objects in the sense that these marks can appear to be autonomous, even if they are meant to look expressionistic, they have a kind of objectness to them.
1: That's true. I mean, I think collage is not the right way of thinking because I feel like collage is sort of like bringing things that are very different to collide into sameness in a way. And maybe it is. I mean, I never have made collage, but certainly I'm bringing things in that are like, let's say an emoji face that's very similar to just this magnified blob, right? And having them kind of, function the same way, but yet they have differences that keep being sort of subordinated to this feeling of abstraction, right? Where you see glimpses of things that also kind of are constantly sort of redistributed into the sort of general effect, right? So nothing can be focused on specifically. It's always sort of giving over, communicating with other things that are quite opposite in their origin,
0: Which museum or gallery do you visit the most?
1: Probably the Whitney. or I mean, that changes over time. Sometimes I'll go a long time without looking at anything. There are times when I just don't want any new information. I just really want to focus on what's going on in my own studio environment. That's been really true for the past few years. I feel like there's already so much. Like, I don't want to open the doors too wide because I am just kind of almost have too, too much to deal with, you know.
0: Can you fixate on things, as in fixate on artworks, historic works or whatever? You know, like, is there a time when you, you're you like, I have to go to the Met to see this today?
1: Again, I think that was something that was happening when I lived in Paris, when I was not painting, but I was trying to figure out what painting was and I was trying to figure out what I liked and I didn't know, you know, and so I just was going back all the time. And I, I began to sort of narrow down because I'd had no art history. I was trying to learn about all that. And I was really taken with the big French painters, right? David and Corbet and Manet and Degas. So I became obsessed with uh, Corbet's funeral at Ornans, and also with Manet's painting of Mallarmé. And so those were paintings that I just kept going back to see one of the ways I look at art a lot now is I travel a lot in the United States because my son is an athlete. So I've had the opportunity to be in a lot of smaller cities and see collections i would never seen, like in Kansas City or Milwaukee or Cincinnati. And I love these museums because all their best is going to be on display, which is like the Met will have marvelous things that you never see because they have so much. So just to bring it back to Manet again, like I saw a little Manet painting, like these three fruits, you know, speaking of the fruits, it had the same impact on me as some of his grander works, you know. And um, I think this was my real inauguration into painting, more even than like making paintings early on. It was revisiting certain paintings that had fascinated me over time. Chardin was another one of those painters. And then I... I think i was gravitating more and more to like a really intensely materialist approach to painting
0: which cultural experience changed the way you see the world
1: i would say one of the most dramatic would be 911 because i was living next door to the world trade center and you know i was living and working in the same space and you know, i had this painting i'd been working on that i was quite interested in and so that day my whole studio was completely filled with dust, and I had to be out of there for, for some days. And Gosh. and I remember when I went back, I looked at that painting, and it didn't make any sense to me anymore. So, you know, I kind of latched on to that as a pivot. And, well, certainly it changed the world. You know, it wasn't just my view of the world. <laughs> of course. It changed so many ways in which we're living. So, you know, without making a political statement about it, it, it was notable for me in many ways, but especially that it was a pivotal point in my painting that where I it was an opportunity to think differently about what I was doing and what I wanted from it.
0: What did you pivot towards? Did it take some time to figure out what you did want to make or did you know quite soon after that?
1: Well, for one thing, I'd had many ideas over the years that I hadn't taken any action on and one of them were these black light paintings Mm -hmm. that I always wanted to make, like bringing together the grandeur of American abstraction and this sort of tawdry... Material black light paint, and uh, you know, a few years after nine eleven, I actually did make my first body of black light paintings. So, I don't. It taught me just, I think, to brood less and act more, and the ways that I work came into being then. Like a realization that if I just stay on my feet, then painting can happen. But if I start my day in a chair, I might just end it in the chair. <laughs> brooding. And, uh,
0: <laughs> Which writers or poets do you return to the most?
1: You know, there's been a break in the kind of things that I read. Like, I last 10 years or so, I read a lot of history. And I was always really more into the novel. But I'm thinking of books that I've read more than once, and there's only a few. One would be The Man Without Qualities by Robert Mussel, Demons, you know, Dostoevsky. Mm. And I have plans to reread Proust, but... <laughs> Maybe just swan's way, I don't know.
0: Proust is one of those writers whose prose gets described as painterly and that level of description, that sort of poetic and, again, a sort of certain indeterminacy which has something like the condition of paint in certain eyes. Can it be as literal as you read Proust and it it can prompt you to think about how to make paintings?
1: It can prompt me to make a certain kind of painting. But let's say other writers that I like, like Céline or Thomas Bernhard, or Roberto Bolaño, mm. might give me a different feeling, you know, like a more polemical, hard-hitting approach. And I would say, like, some of the paintings in my show, some are more Proustian, some are more of this other ilk, right? Where it's, like, more like, I want to punch you in the face, you know, <laughs> with this thing that's as a way to engage you. or You know, it's more <laughs> confrontational or something, or
0: Yeah, it's really good that you're talking about the polemical nature because it's when you're making abstract paintings, the idea is that somehow they are abstract and therefore somehow divorced from the real world. But one of the things that you keep reinforcing is their presence in today's world. And a certain politics, I mean, downstairs in this exhibition now, there are exhibitions which are inspired by seeing the Just Stop Oil protest where tomato soup was thrown over Van Gogh's sunflowers at the National Gallery. So you, you want the real world to enter your works, right?
1: Well, again, it's kind of forcing its way in. I mean, I think my idea of making abstraction is that it would be more in the world, in the present, it's about presence in some way, always, right? And then suddenly the stop oil protests, you know, not only they bring painting into social media, which is a very interesting new thing, really, aside from artists communicating, but you know, mainstream media is showing art in a new way that it's being altered by, you know, it's this nodal point, right, of these different things in a very interesting way. I think the thing about abstraction is always sort of like, it's abstract, but that's actually what describes it better is that it's concrete, right? It's real, you know, it's real in the way it is in the world.
0: Absolutely. But also, of course, as well as sort of reinforcing how important art is, those protests was a kind of making of gestural art the soup became like an abstract mark and is it something that you saw like echoes of your own work those kind of gestural marks that you've been involving in your work right from the start
1: yes i mean you know when i got over my initial shock like you know that they just trying to destroy paintings i mean they weren't there was glass i mean it's it's complicated what was happening but my initial impression was oh my god that's incredible how terrible but gee that looks like a lot of paintings i've made over the years and uh hmm, isn't that interesting? Like, (laughs) And I just became more and more drawn into all this. And as the protests are repeating themselves in different places, and the gluing of the hand to the frame, and the whole thing began to sort of expand and become, you know, fascinate me. And and again, I had this sort of like parody in the way that I like to make paintings by, you know, making these impulsive-looking gestures, you know, where it looks like I'm throwing paint at the painting, but it's actually a very carefully done thing too. So it's both like... It's impulse, but it's very deliberate, right?
0: Which is a metaphor for that action by Just Stop Oil. It was a very, very deliberate thing which produced a very kind of violent mark.
1: Violence, yet without consequence, but wanting to produce this effect. So it's sort of like, it's not real violence, but it is violent. You know, the image, the idea is violent. It makes violence in the mind, right? But it's also has all of the attraction and fascination that violence can produce you know for better or worse.
0: What music or other audio do you listen to while you're working?
1: I listen to a lot of radio. There's a station WFMU and it's all like real DJs you know and uh, there are a lot of shows on there that I love and I really like just having someone else choose, you know, and they're, it's just an extraordinary kind of culture they have going there. And, uh, you know, so I kind of just stepped away from a lot of my engagement with the music world, which was very intense, say, in the 90s. And, you know, also my son, who's a teenager, I like to know what he's listening to. A lot of what he's listening to is what I listened to <laughs> when I was younger. But also, and this kind of goes back to, like, contemporary artists that are important to me, you know, someone like Marky e. Smith. Not only do I love his music, but he's a role model as an artist in the way that he just always kept going, you know, and more important just to make stuff and then let it sort itself out and always making something new. and
0: Yeah, sort of relentlessly uncompromising and, yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, and I love, like, he has an album titled 50,000 Fall Fans Can't Be Wrong. <laughs> Because, of course, that's a tiny audience by any standard of the music industry. But what he's saying is like, yeah, but they're real fans, you know. And that's, you know, what more could you want? Like, that's a lot of like really hardcore committed fans. And
0: Yeah, he commands an extraordinary loyalty, actually. You yes. Know, once you're a full fan, you, you're you undyingly a full For fan. For life,
1: yeah. <laughs> well, he's a poet, to, you know, really. And I think he created a new thing, really a new feeling, you know.
0: Is it right your dad was a jazz musician?
1: He was, you know, not a successful one. He's from South Carolina, was, he's dead now. But he arrived in New Orleans as a traveling salesman. He was working for Procter & Gamble, but he loved jazz. So uh, he'd been to college on the GI Bill. And um, so he, you know, just went for the sort of French Quarter bohemian life as a jazz musician. And then met my mother and had three kids and, you know, had been in radio And TV also kind of migrated to other parts of the business of the man who owned the radio and TV stations and, uh, you know, probably took pity on this guy who needed to support his children, you know, (laughs) wasn't going to do that with a banjo, you know.
0: (laughs) But does jazz sort of enter into your musical uh, world? Is jazz still a sort of touchstone in any
1: way? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the music I grew up with and of course music's everywhere in New Orleans and... I'm not a jazz aficionado. I feel like it's sort of my native genre, you know, that I don't Mm. need to. Like, I know what it is, and I'm more of a rocker, really.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What other media influence your work?
1: Yeah, I think media in general. And, you know, I spent some time many years ago playing a lot of computer games or the novelty of the personal computer. It's really just the changes in the culture that I keep describing as kind of forcing their way into my work are more than influences. Yeah, it's sort of this urgency of the real world like making itself apparent. And again, a thing that's meant to be neutral or blank of those very aspects, right? Eternal. And yet, you know, it's, let's say, we talk about the ASCII paintings, which are made only with keyboard characters. This is coming from, you know, realizing one day like, oh, gee, you know, I came to New York because like the people are so great. And I made a lot of friends here and, you know, made a lot of paintings here, a lot of conversations with friends also making paintings or art. And all I got for it was this damn keyboard (laughs) because now I'm just on the keyboard all day with my friends. And, oh, gee, we're all on keyboards all day. This is a very new thing. So I don't know if that's an influence exactly, but it is like a condition, you know, so I think cultural conditions in this more and more media dominated world, you know, from video games to the way we communicate emojis, text messages, emoticons, all of that is, yeah, very much influential for me. Yeah,
0: yeah. This this game called Dwarf Fortress Yeah. was particularly important. Can you say something about that?
1: So I was working with a lot of regular patterns and I bought these big laser cutters from my studio, which is great because I can make things very fast, you know, make stencils very fast and make anything I want. And so I've been working a lot of dot patterns and... I was looking for something that was or also like emoticons and so keyboard characters had kind of crept into the stencils again not as a wanted thing but as a thing that just insisted and then to mention my assistant Peter Grenados again we were looking at different video games like Earthbound and he discovered this game named Dora Fortress which is it has like an old look to it like MS-DOS keyboard characters some of which are Greek, Cyrillic, you know, these other symbols that come in that make these terrains. It's an open source game. And uh, that kind of set off a new thinking about how to make, say, colour through image. You could combine regular patterns in a way to make an irregular field and just open up a, you know, a new trajectory. Yeah. Is there a
0: particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual?
1: Yeah, well, it's just going to the studio and going no matter what. You know, even if I have things to do, not things to do, I go to the studio. If I had a bad day, I go to the studio. Good day, go to the studio. I'm in a good mood, I go to the studio. I'm in a terrible mood, I go to the studio. That's just kind of it. It's really just the discipline of being there.
0: It's about turning
1: up. You got to turn up, yeah. You have to be there, yeah. Not only when you feel like it, but, you know, but actually, yeah, it's my place of thinking, it's a place to think. Like even just going and sitting there is like still working in some way.
0: If you could live with just one work of art, what
1: would it be? That's not a fair question, is (laughs) it? You know, I guess it would have to be one of those paintings that unlocked things for me. You know, again, the painting of Mallarmé by Manet, but I would say any Manet painting would suffice. But I think my real answer to that is any artwork at all. Because, you know, even for lesser artworks, or there's always, you know, this sort of compassion for the artist. Like, to get the stuff across the surface is not an easy thing to do, and each person who's ever done it does it in their own way, right? Or discovers over time new ways of doing it. So I think if if the meager offering is one artwork, then I would have to, like, leave up what that artwork is to someone else, and then my role would be to, like, find something in it to like,
0: That's very nice. And that leads us on to the last question, which is, what is art for?
1: I don't think it's for anything, really. I mean, I I think how is art is kind of a more interesting question. Like, what is art? That's a popular question. Like, what is it? What can it be? You know, this repository of human consciousness and, uh, you know, over the entirety of human history. So I don't know if that answers what it's for, but I think it's, really only through art that we have, you know, any ability to reflect on what we are or how we are, you know, in the world. And I don't think it's for answering questions, more for posing them. I think its purpose perhaps is to defy easy answers and to, you know, put on display just the immense complexity of things.
0: Jacqueline Humphreys is at Modern Arts Two London galleries in Helmet Row and Berry Street until the 22nd of July. She also features in We Smell Gas at Rena Spaulings in New York until the 25th of June. In from Andy Warhol to Kara Walker: Scenes from the Collection at the Museum Brandhorst in Munich, in Germany, until the 14th of July, and in To Bend the Ear of the Outer World: Conversations on Contemporary Abstract Painting at Gagosian in London until the 25th of August. and that's it for this episode please subscribe to a brush with wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on apple podcasts do also subscribe to our sister podcast the week in art a deep dive into the latest big art world stories the top shows and the key issues every friday we're on twitter at tan audio and on facebook and instagram of course production editing and sound design on a brush with are by david clack and the producer is amy dawson thanks also to Daniela hathaway a big thank you to Jacqueline Humphreys, We'll see you next week for the final episode of this series A Brush With Jeremy Della Bye for now A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions
1: on demand